Hello and welcome to Late Night Talks, a weekly podcast talking to science fiction and fantasy authors about their creative process and how they got started in publishing. I talk to traditionally published and self-published authors about their influences, their inspirations and their latest work. My first guest is Angus Watson. He's a fantasy author who has two trilogies out with Orbit Books. The first is The Age of Iron and the second is The West of West. This podcast was recorded in September 2020, but for the first 30 or so episodes, I'll be releasing them weekly, so before the end of 2023, you will have caught up with the most recent episodes. All of these interviews come from my YouTube channel, which is predominantly focused on giving writing advice, so if you want to watch any of the interviews, they are on there. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to support it, please leave a review or subscribe to the YouTube channel. Right, let's get on with the interview. I start with the same question that I always do about their origin story. So here's the thing I don't know to begin with. So what's your origin story? How did you get into fantasy? Like, how did you get into reading it first? I'm presuming you read it before you started writing it. it only just, only just. I mean, I read fantasy a bit when I was a kid. Uh, right. I got into reading through Douglas Adams, through H.R. Uh, Sky to the Galaxy, got into the love of reading. I remember dragging uh, friends into the school bookshop going, you've got to read this book. Look at this line about you know, the filing cabinet and beware of the leopard. Um, it, nothing has ever been funnier. Um, uh, and then I got quite pretentious and I used to read sort of, you know, uh, literary fiction and foreign stuff. And then about, probably about 12 years ago, my brother handed me a Joe Abercrombie book and a Scott Lynch book and said, mm-hmm. read this. He's, I mean, he's a mad fancy reader. He's got, he's read, read all of yours, all of my, you know, he's read everyone's um, much more than I have. Much, 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 much. Uh, anyway, he handed me these Joe Abercrombie books and Scotland book and said, read this. And I said, I'm not reading your nerd crap. You know, I'm too, <laughs> I'm too high for this nonsense. Um, and he said, no, go do it. Do it. Read 70 pages of each. If you don't like it, stop. And, All right, fair enough. Um, and I read it and I was blown away. Absolutely blown away. I just thought this, these are the best books I read in a very long time. They were just as intelligent as anything I'd ever read. Uh, just as funny, just as good. And it just opened up my eyes completely that you could actually have a lot of fun while writing or reading um, uh, with these crazy fun worlds uh, and, yeah, um, um, and shake it up a bit. And um, I'd been meaning to write historical fiction because I quite like my uh, Patrick O'Brien and all that sort of thing. Bernard Cornwell to an extent. I don't really respect Bernard Cornwell, but um, I love my, yeah, um, I love the, the worlds he writes about. Yeah. And then I, I was at the time, I, in my 20s, I sort of fannied around and I did sort of temp jobs in merchant banks and that sort of thing all the time saying, I want to be a writer. Um, but then when I was about 30, my girlfriend at the time got me a, a creative writing course and said, look, you're always going about wanting to be a writer, go on this. And I went on it. At the same time, my bank offered me voluntary redundancy, which I took. And I changed my creative, well, I finished my creative writing course and did a freelance features writing course. And I took a year off and I wrote a book, uh, which was rubbish, but it was a fantasy book, strange enough, having not read any fantasy for, you know, ever. Uh, but it was crap. All the, you know, all the characters were the same. There was no suspense. Um, all the characters were me, basically. And um, then I took this freelance fe- uh, features writing course and said to myself, you know, at the end of it, if I can make you know, 500 quid this month, a grand the next month, 1500 quid the next month, I am allowed to p- try and pursue this career. And I did, um, nearly. Um, but within three or four months, I was writing for The Telegraph and the FT really regularly, and then every now and then The Times and then Daily Mail. Um, and, yeah, so I spent 10 years writing mostly for The Telegraph and the FT and doing things like spending a day in an otter sanctuary in Devon, just looking after otters and sea lions. Um, <laughs> wow. Which great. Yeah. That's and cool. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was really nice. I'd sit there on a hillside in, you know, in Wiltshire looking at owls um, on a Tuesday afternoon just thinking, this is better than being in an office. Yeah. Um, and they sent me to America to look for Bigfoot, which is good. I went up to Orkney Islands, uh, Orkney Islands to dive on Scapa Flow, uh, look at the old, you know, sunken, sunken World War One German fleet that's up there. Mm-hmm. Did loads of groovy stuff. Cycled from Bristol to London, you know, walked from Bristol to London as well. Um, and then... Um, I'm banging on about this. Yeah, anyway, so that all sort of fell a bit flat uh, because papers collapsed with the internet. They won't tell you because they, you know, they control the newsman, but they're dead. They don't have any money anymore, so they couldn't pay me to do fun things anymore. Mm. Um, and at the same time, we did an article for the Telegraph on hill forts, 
And I went down to Dorchester. I went to Maiden Castle, which is the best hill fort in England. Uh-huh. And um, met this guy with a huge beard uh, at Dorchester Museum. And then we looked around the museum. I did my research beforehand, so I knew a bit about the Iron Age. Although there's not much to know. Uh, and you can do all the research I've ever done in, in five minutes on Wikipedia. And all the rest is just conjecture. Um, so, yeah, I walked up this hill fort with him and said, you know, what was it like? Was it like Conan the Barbarian? From my research, it seems like it was you know, big muscly men rescuing women from snake temples. And then he went, well, it's not the best of our knowledge. That's what it was like. In fact, you know, in the Bible, it's probably about the best testament we have of what it was like in the period. Oh, awesome. I'm going to write about this. Um, and it was, it was, that was combined at the same time I was reading, you know, Joe Abercrombie and Scott Lynch. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this. I'm going to fancy it up a bit. Mm. Uh, so having read Caesar's diaries at school, I always thought that they were a pile of bollocks because... You know, you know, age 15, when we read them, I thought, hang on a minute. You know, is, this is the only uh, report we have of Caesar's invasion. And it says, you know, uh, I took over loads and loads of people, well enough to take the country, but we decided not to because, you know, I just didn't want to. Mm. Um, I went back to Rome after a few months because, well, whatever. Uh, so it was clearly that the Britons beat him. And, it was, you know, and the history was lying to itself, saying, you know, he left with treaties made with his, you know, head held high. No nonsense, he was beaten roundly. So I decided to write that story. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so sort of the end of Iron Age Britain and how they defeated Caesar. It was in, I'm sorry, I'm banging on for a bit. I just remember that a week after I did the Hillfort art, um, article, I did, well, it might have been two weeks, I did one on a Stone Age toolmaker. Um, right. We went up another Hillfort, this one further over somewhere in Sussex, and we went up a hill fort. It just happened to be where the Stone Age tool mine was as well, but it had later been an Iron Age hill fort. And opposite across the valley was another Iron Age hill fort. And I thought, hang on a minute. These aren't just a hill fort. This is a connected thing. There were hill forts absolutely everywhere. There was a huge society going on. There was lots of crap happening. There were epic wars, love affairs, love affairs, and thousands of years before the Romans came. We don't know anything about it because of, you know, there were no written history and the Romans obliterated any spoken history yeah. in their 400-year occupation. I mean, so, so this is this is what led you to start writing the, the Age of Iron. Yeah, yeah, wow. and so I, you know, very, very unexcitingly, or you know, unoriginally, I, I wanted a you know reluctant hero, aged around forty, which I was when I wrote it. Um, a you know hot woman, you know, obviously who was mysterious and weird and a bit younger. Uh, you know, nothing was at all, and a mysterious child. I was quite into the idea of, you know, a relationship of an adult and a child, you know, a pure platonic thing. So at the time I was, I've always been a bit dismayed that you can't walk past a playground, you know, and lean over the fence and watch the children play anymore because, you know, then you get moved along. Yeah. Give you funny looks. Um, I can do that now. Now I'm a parent. I can sit there and watch the children play. It's okay. But when, you, when you're not, I, I don't like that. I think that's wrong. Anyway, how long did it take you to write the first the first novel then? Probably about a year and a half, maybe. Right. I mean, not long. Uh, it was I was very lucky in that um, I was professional. I was writing anyway, yeah, you know, full time. So it wasn't a big switch to suddenly carry on writing full time. Uh, and my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, who works in a hedge fund, said, "Look, you, let's be honest here. I, I make in ten seconds what you make in a year. You might as well take some time <laughs> off and." Um, <laughs> Yeah, have a go at your book. Um, so yeah, so thanks to her, I got the chance to have a crack at it. Right, and 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 you then started sending it out to to agents once you were ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah sent out to a few agents, chose one, and then she hawked it around the publishers, got Orbit, and it was brilliant. I was, you know, I mean, I imagine you had the same sort of deal. You get to get a, I can't remember how it happened, get an email or a phone call saying we're going to have your book. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember where I was when I got the phone call. I was I was driving home from work and my phone rang and I thought it's a bit of weird the time and I, I I never look at my phone when I'm driving. So I pulled off into the car park of um, of a Dunelm in Leeds where I was living at the time and saw it said a, a missed call from my agent. I thought that's a bit weird. So I rang her back and then she's that's when she rang me and said. Uh, yes, they're they're going to take your book. Uh, they they sent him them out on a a weeks. Um, they get a look to look at them for a week before everybody else, and they made me an offer on that uh, in that week because if they didn't, it goes out in general release to all the publishers. But yeah, Orbit made an offer, and, uh, and that was Battle Mage, and that was my first book. 
Um, the other reason I should say, which I haven't mentioned, that one of the reasons we're doing this for talking is that this week, or this month anyway, marks the fifth anniversary since Battle Mage came out, and it'll be the sixth anniversary, more or less, since your Yeah, first... exactly sixth, and the, and the fifth of my second book, which That's right. came out at the same time as your first. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, wow. I, I, I don't remember when I heard it, but... I remember when I first got my, got my first freelance commission, which was an article in the Evening Standard in mm. London. I remember exactly where I was. I was in a pub. I remember the phone call. I remember walking out and taking it. But then being a freelance, I had that a thousand more times. But every time is cool because every time you pitch an idea, you know, you write something, hi, there's this, um, you know, this guy who trains kestrels in Leicestershire. I want to go and talk to him. There's a Conquer World Championship is happening over in Norfolk. I want to go and cover that. And they write back and say, yes, woo! It's all, you know, it's... A, <laughs> It's like getting commissioned every single time. Yeah, yeah. Getting you come up with a great idea and they go for it and pay you to yeah, go. Yeah, we'll pay you four hundred pounds for <laughs> yeah, to go and cover this story to spend a week writing it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, four hundred pounds, awesome! And then you do the old spend it three times thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is yeah. true. Yeah. Um, so you, so, yeah. you, so having done that first trilogy, you then went on and did a second trilogy. Yes. Is it set in the same world? No, it's completely different. Um, set in America, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very similar style. It's called West of West. It was because I wanted to go and travel about America. Cause what happened is my wife and I went on a road trip in America. Um, I had grown up sort of, you know, thinking a bit like my reading. Yeah. Ha- if, if you're going on a holiday, you've got to go somewhere weird and dangerous with a backpack on. There's no other, there's no other place to go. Whereas my wife had grown up, you know, in a very different background. She'd grown up sort of, you know, camping at best in France sort of thing. So her idea was all it was, you know, a hotel somewhere. Um, but somewhere first worldy, not, you know, not somewhere frightening. Um, so we compromised and road trips in America because, uh, you know, the car became my backpack and she chose our hotels. Um, and I just fell massively in love with the Western USA. I've been to East Coast. I've got family in the East Coast. So I've been to East quite a bit. And I've got family in Seattle too. I've been there quite a bit and thought it was amazing. But I was just blown away by the desert. I just fell massively in love with it. Um, I love the geology strip there. Uh, the wildlife's really good, strangely enough, because you can see it because there isn't much cover. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I, any excuse, I go back there. And that was a really good excuse. So, uh, yeah. I decided to set a trilogy in the USA of Vikings traveling between Chicago and Las Vegas a thousand years ago. Oh, is this that they crossed, they crossed on the ice bridge? Is that no, 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 no. I mean, the Vikings were in America. Mm. There's, you know, there's a Viking village in Newfoundland. So Columbus very much wasn't the first European in America. Um, and there are two sagas that cover this. Uh, but I reckon they were in America more because the Vikings were, I can't remember how many sagas, but it wasn't many. And they wrote very little. We know very little about the Vikings. So I they were in America more than we think. And I think they were the bravest people ever, the Vikings. They had this philosophy, you die when you die, which is the title of the first book of that trilogy. Mm. So your, your day of your death is set. So whatever you did, it doesn't matter. You could jump off a cliff. If you died, that's because you were meant to die that day. Yeah. But if you weren't, you wouldn't die. Um, so they must have traveled across America. So I took this a bit further. So my, the trilogy starts with a bunch of Vikings living uh, near Chicago on the edge of Lake Michigan. Not Chicago, wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and uh, they've got really sort of lazy and useless. After 100 years of being fated as gods by the local Indians, they um, have just become this useless, lazy bunch of weirdos. And then one day, the, uh, the bigger empire further south decides to uh, kill them all. Uh, okay. uh, so, yeah, so that's how it begins. Um, and what was fascinating is, is researching it, is, you know, you're researching Native Americans and realizing that, I mean, the term Native Americans is severely problematic. It's like, so, well, it's like, well, it's not problematic. But, I mean, that's a modern language way of saying it. Basically, it's like saying Europeans. It's like say, judging people as, in a group as Native Americans is like saying, oh, my God, you're English, so you must like feta cheese and olives. You know, it's... Um, they're a very disparate group. They're, you know, they're very, very, uh, very varied. And there were huge empires. Uh, we don't know what happened to them. There was this place in St. Louis, a place called Cahokia, where there were pyramids and uh, a town that's in, uh, you know, a thousand years ago was larger than London at the time. Uh, nobody knows why it went into decline 200 years later. But anyway, that's where I've based my baddies in my book. 
Um, there are these awesome uh, towns in uh, in Colorado in a place called Mesa Verde, where they've just dug. It looks like a Cornish stone village dug into the clefts of a cliff. Um, there's all this groovy stuff around that I didn't know about. Uh, so it was really fun to research and, and make a story based around that, and then run Vikings through it. Um, there's a bunch of idiots Vikings. <laughs> I think possibly the reason my second trilogy didn't do as well as my first. Um, is that I based the protagonist, the main guy, on me, age 19. Um, I found some <laughs> diaries of me backpacking in India and Thailand where I was just an absolute band, you know, just complete, just so lacking all sorts of self-awareness, uh, absolute arse, you know, heart in the right place, but so self-obsessed, so girl-obsessed, you know, completely. <laughs> um, and really confused why women weren't going for him. <laughs> that was my main character. Um, so yeah, he's the main guy, and he's he's not that appealing. Uh, did, did you find it was any having written that first trilogy and then coming to write the second trilogy? Did you find it any easier? Because when I first when I first did my first trilogy, I had a plan in mind, and but it's all about that first book. You spend so much time working on the first book and trying to get an agent and trying to get a publisher. And once you got the deal, it's like right now you start working on the second one and plan how the third one's going to wrap it all up. So when you come to do that second trilogy, was it any easier, or were you still coming up against the same problems or the same struggles, I guess, rather than problems. I think it was probably easy because I think you hit the nail on the head. And I don't know if you were the same, but for the first trilogy, I had the first book absolutely sorted. Mm. And I was like, ah, what do I do next? Um, whereas for my second trilogy, I had, I had, I started with the end. I right. knew it was going to happen at the end. And um, so I just had to get there with lots of hilarity and bloodshed um, all along the way. So do you plan your books quite a lot or do you still let, just see how it goes and develops? No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a planner. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, me too. Mainly, I mean, I just, I heard, I hate the word pantser so much, I'm not sure I could be one. You know? <laughs> well, and, I, I, and I know Stephen King is a pantser. We could say gardener. Uh, so. that's, the, that's the nicer term. Gardeners and architects. Those are the other ends of the spectrum. I don't like that either. <laughs> I don't know a gardener. I don't like the term. Don't like gardeners. Gardeners, you know, I'm impressed and pleased that people do garden. The world looks better because of you, gardeners. Um, no, I, I, I build, so I'm an architect or a, or a planner, if you like, as well. Yeah, I have to. I can't. I tried. I wrote, I wrote a novel once, just making up as I went along, and it was a huge mess. And I thought, right, well, go, go back and fix it. And it was such a mess that I, I couldn't. I'd have to start it again. I have to ripped it up from the roots and used the same ideas, but to write a whole book again, and then after I planned it all out again, spent another year writing it, I thought, no, th this isn't for me. I've learned my lesson. Planning is the way forward. I think so. Although Stephen King um, makes a character and then gives a, has a weird situation and goes from there. Yeah, but he also describes it as uh, brushing the dust off a fossil where he's got the bones of it, and as he, go, as he works his way through it, He's constantly revising it and like taking a bit more of the dust off until he can see what it looks like. Um, do you do that? Do you, do you edit as you go along? Do you write one night and then go back to the beginning of it the following night? No, I, I'll go back only a little bit to remind me of where I was. If I haven't finished at a good point when I'm writing, like an end of a chapter, if I get, if I get to the end of a chapter and I've got an hour left of writing, I'll just stop for the day. I'd rather come in the next day and start a new chapter rather than be, you know, 500 words in just and be like, no. So I'll look back at what I've done the previous day um, just to remind myself if I need it. And then I'll move forward again. I might tweak the odd word, but I don't go, I don't constantly go back and forth. I just, it's that idea of you've got a deadline. You've got this many months to get to the end of that first draft. You've got to hit it. You've got to, you've got to do it because this, this, this persists, right? It really annoys me. A lot of readers, well, some readers, that's unfair. Some readers will say, I'll only read a series when it's finished, when it's all come out, yeah. because of the unreliability of half a dozen fantasy authors. Oh, 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 Martin, thank you very much. Him and others who are less forthcoming about the reasons, and some are very forthcoming and have explained why they're struggling. Some have not put a book out for eight or ten years in the series. And, and because of that, the rest of us have been tarred with the same brush, even though... 80-90% of authors release their books on time and meet their deadlines on time. Yeah, I, I think you have to be fairly lenient with readers. I mean, they are the reason we can do what we do. 
But equally, they shouldn't blame us for the mistakes of others, is my point. That, you know, because someone else messed up with their deadline. I've, I've always hit mine or I've been early on mine. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. But your books are still going to be, um, just excuse me one second, I will carry on talking. Your books are still going to be a year apart, aren't they? Most of the time, yeah. It, it depends on how fast the publishing schedule is and what they're going to do. I mean, they, they brought out my second and third book a lot faster. I think they did with yours as well. Yeah, yeah, six, I think it was six months. Six Actually, months yes, gaps. Because my third book was five years ago because there were six months gaps between them, yeah. So, yeah, they gave me a longer lead time to work mm. on two and three, and then we had September, April, and then I think September. So it's only 12 calendar months, and you've had a whole trilogy. But, I mean, I do think, are you the same? The, the best book I've ever written is the next book. Probably. You know, yeah, the book that's coming. This is when I rehearse, you know, Showing my age, being on Wogan for, uh, you know. <laughs> Shame he's been dead for, you know, 10 years. <laughs> Rest in peace, Terry. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, I practice my chat show. Um, which I guess we yeah, would be, be like this, yeah. You'll, you'll uh, so, walk you know. on and laugh. Yeah, so I think it's the best book in history ever. Yeah. Hmm? As long as you don't go on Nicolas Cage like he did when he came on Wogan. Oh, he came on, yeah, yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. He like, comes out, he's yes, throwing money, he does a karate kick, he does a forward roll, and he's he just absolutely probably coked off his head. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I think that's okay. I think, you know, I might, I won't do that. I'll, I'm, I'm going to go for the modest thing, you know, or, you know, it may be the, you know, the most, the best-selling book ever, but um, I'm just lucky, you know. <laughs> It's probably going to be Graham Norton. Really, really great, really great for the readers. Really great for the readers. Um, that's, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, um, but, and I, I mean, the Tom Cruise jumping on the sofa is the worst thing that's ever happened with anyone being. Oh, that was that was way over the top. That was ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Anyway, okay, here's, here's a good question. For, uh, I wrote okay. What's the worst piece of advice, writing advice, you've ever been given? Well, I mean, a piece of advice you see often is uh, don't write about characters that you haven't lived. Um, which is often political now, and that is just nonsense. It annoys the hell out of me, you know, it's why you have an imagination. Um, so that is a terrible piece of writing advice. Yeah, write, write what you know is the other way of phrasing it, people say. And I think it's, yeah, right. that's, that's basically what you said, and I, I agree. It's a horrible piece of advice. It's, and it's interesting. I mean, to a degree, I agree with it in that, um, I mean, I'm writing at the moment and I've got an agent who is saying, you know, increase, uh, include a more diverse uh, cast, which is you know, absolutely fine. I can do that. Um, although I, I kind of do it anyway. But if you want to include someone French, I, I can muck around with English names. I can call somebody something. Like, I met a guy the other day called Piers Bollard and his wife, Emma Bollard. And I think this is two of the best names ever, Emma and Piers Bollard, brilliant, brilliant names. And I, I understand why they're brilliant names um, to me. Nobody else in the whole world might get this, but I think they're cool. And they're very, you know, I'd like to use those as character names. I can't do that in French, even though I speak reasonable French. Um, you know, I, I, can't, I can't be as, 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 you know, I don't think I can, I, I can be as funny or, or, or um, appealing in my writing in a different language so that's, or in a different culture. So there is something in the write what you know, but if you was if if I was only going to write about fat guys approaching their fifties who wish they were thinner, then <laughs> it would be, be a boring story. It's just a biography. Actually, it's not a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, think I, it, I, I mean, my, you will always get a capture of my books. <laughs> but I like the idea of writing from a female perspective or writing from an Australian perspective or whatever. You know, it's a. It's fun to read and research and write things out. Um, now, you've recently written a book on bad and good advice given to writers. Yeah, and this, one of my things was, is, is don't write what you know, because... Uh, hang on. Uh, hello. So no one likes your cats. No one else finds cats appealing. Um, ah, what, what's the name of that cat? That cat is called Napa, named after the valley in, in America. Ah, nice. In when we've got cats. Hello, Napa. My cats are both asleep, so they won't be making an appearance. Um, yeah, I, so write what you know suggests that you only write characters that you've met or people that you've experienced of or things you've experienced of. On the one hand, yes, I can see it makes sense because people think that therefore you won't get it wrong, you won't offend anybody. But on the other hand, if all I'm doing is writing about the things that I've experienced, it's quite a boring fantasy book. Um, you know, yeah, fantasy books exactly. are full of 
of yeah. wizards and killers and kings and queens and you know all sorts of weird non-human race i've got non-human races in my books so yeah. i think as long as you treat everything with respect you do your homework i mean you always get this wrong i think i don't think i mentioned this to you but um for my birthday a couple of years ago my brother said what what do you want to do and i said I don't want a thing. Let's go and do something for the day. And he said, all right, what? I said, let's go and do like blacksmithing for a day. I've written about blacksmiths in all my books, making swords. And he goes, okay, I found a place near me. You can come and be a blacksmith for the day and make a sword. Brilliant. We went down, we spent the whole day with the blacksmiths. I made a sword, sort of. And thereafter, I apologized to the blacksmith and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've got everything wrong. I've done all my homework. Yeah. And I still got it wrong. And they, they were like, yeah, we know. And obviously you can't make a sword in a day. When I said that to them, they just laughed because it's not possible to actually make a That's real sword in a day. Um, I made a crap sword. That he said, what are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to hang it on the wall. He said, okay. If you said you were going to go out and do, um, um, you know, cover it in foam and hit people with it, do some LARPing, I would have changed what the way we were doing it. He said, but, but because you was hanging it on a wall, I don't need to worry about it falling apart. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'd done my homework. I'd read about Blacksmith, yeah, and, and I still got it wrong. Um, so going forward, I'll do better. But I think that's all you can do is do your you know, I'm, I'm really old school. I, I, I do do my homework, um, but I don't think you have to. I think it's you're writing. It doesn't matter. You can write whatever the hell you want. Get it wrong. It's okay. You know, it, it, it shouldn't matter. If you get it wrong, you get it wrong. People can take it for whatever it is. People should be able to judge and, and say, you know, no, well, this book's rubbish, and, and they won't read it. Or they will read it and find it hilarious. Um, but we're not, we're not seeking to go out and offend people on purpose. We're just writing about no, things. No, but, you know, I just, moved to new, I just moved to New Forest. If someone from um, San Francisco wrote a book on the New Forest and it just got it entirely wrong, uh, didn't understand English people. Didn't I'd never met one. Um, it wouldn't. I, I, it's not offensive. It's funny, or or it's or it's shit. You know, it's it's one of the two. Or uh, you can ignore it, or you can laugh at it, or that's it. The, the, the thing to not to do is, is take it seriously mm. and get all upset about it. Um, why would you? Here's another question I've got. It's a good one. What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about being a, a, an author or a published author? I do, it doesn't change you. It doesn't, um, mm. it doesn't just to be published doesn't make any difference. To not being published, you know, if you can write, you know, if you're writing really good emails, you know, um, to Gary who has um, mucked up the procedures on something or the ordering of something else. If you if you're crafting that email absolutely beautifully, you know, you're writing a good email, <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's you know that's as valid. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so. I, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any difference. I did, um, yeah. And all the authors I've met are such a varied gang. I mean, one of the big joys about being a fantasy author, I don't know if other authors get it, is to go and meet them. We, we spoke briefly earlier before we started recording. You said you spent five days with R.J. Barker in France. Yep. Um, <laughs> I've, done a couple of, I've done three conventions now in Poland and had to hang out with uh, Brian McClellan, um, mm. Levita Dar, um, and Brian McClellan again, and I am now really good friends with those people. You know, um, I've you know met them so but well, I've met Levi socially. But Brian's slightly trickier because he lives in um, Salt Lake City, which is outside Salt Lake City. Uh, but we chat, and we're uh, you know, it, it was that is the perfect convention for me. But it's being you know, um, being almost forced in spending time with one other writer, and you become mates because. But yeah, they're so very different, very different people, and completely varied, and could not be, not be weirder and wilder. I went to, a, it was the French um, uh, Les Imaginales festival that they have every year. Um, I was invited. It was me, Al Robertson, RJ Barker, Ed McDonald. Um, and we were staying in the same hotel as the American authors who were invited over that year as well. So Stephen Erickson was there um, and okay. Robin Hobb as well. Robin. I've actually yeah, so the, badly read with fancy, but I actually have read a few of hers. She's the guest. She was the guest of the main guest of honor, her and Stephen Erickson. And yeah. so I spent three days sat next to Stephen Erickson in a really, really hot uh, marquee because it was a boiling hot weekend. We were there. Um, and so I, I, there again, likewise, and me and RJ got to know all of these, these fantastic authors and spend time with them and go out for meals with them as part of the festival and talk to them and sit in the bar and chat and have breakfast together in a hotel. 
lovely people, absolutely loved spending time with them. Um, and it's the best convention and festival I've, I've ever been to still, compared to any of the others I've been to. Um, it was just Was so RJ your proper mate? Pardon? Was RJ, your, RJ was your proper mate in that gang? Yeah, yeah. I, I speak to RJ, I yeah, guess, so more, you, than, you and more than the others. Um, I didn't know him as well before, but thereafter, I guess having spent so much time with him, I know him fairly well now. Um, yeah. But it, it, I wouldn't have met, there's no chance I would have met some of these people if I hadn't gone to this festival. I wouldn't know I would have got to have known them to the way that I do yeah, now. Listen, I met RJ, who's an excellent guy at Worldcon, and I spent, what, five minutes with him at a, a pub table. Hmm. Um, that's what's nice about his forum, because you really get to, you, you get, not only get pushed to meet people, but you will probably spark off one of them and you'll become really good friends. Um, as I do with Levita Dar in Poland, when there were other novelists there, but we just, we, we realised that we were both you know, idiots. We knew we were idiots and, and um, <laughs> piss takers and, and um, not taking anything quite as seriously as, as anybody else. Uh, yeah. Um. I think um, when we saw Steve Erickson, I think he was, he was a bit tired and he was a bit kind of um, worn out, maybe from travel and he was a bit jet lagged, but because RJ is such an up person, I think Steve had a much better convention <laughs> by spending time with us than perhaps he was planning to or expected to. And he said, yeah, this, this was fun. This was fun. So, you know, that was nice of him. Yeah, cool. But uh, anyway, right. We've got some questions from the people uh, well, I've got for you. So let's have a look. Here's an interesting one. Are, are there any plans for a TV series or movies based upon your books? Uh, yeah, yeah, I love this question so much. Yeah, maybe you should explain why you're smiling and why it's why it's so funny. Uh, because a lot of my friends, my family say, you know, why haven't you done a film or TV of your books yet? It would be so good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I'd be absolutely 100% okay with TV and film made in my books. Um, but Netflix or uh, Steven Spielberg, or no one has approached me yet. Um, Josh Whedon has not knocked down my door. Um, there are an awful lot of books out there. Uh, yeah. No TV or film has been made of Joe Abercrombie's books yet, and they are very good. Um, obviously, not quite as good as either of ours, but you know they, they are good. He's um, all right, you know. <laughs> it's not so bad. I might write his, read his next one. Um, uh, so yeah, of course, I mean, I, I'd love it, but it, it, it's massive out of our hands, and there are a lot of great stories out there. My main problem is uh, you probably read 2000 AD comic, and you, I imagine being the person you are, know who Strontium Dog is and Rogue Trooper. Yes. Um, these are films that should be made. You know, um, the story of Johnny Alpha. I, you know, that's, that'd be an incredible film. That's been around for 20, 30 years and no one's made it. So unfortunately, there's not that many films being made. Um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not up to us. If somebody options our books, that gives them the rights for usually 18 months to two years to do something with it and they have to pay us and, for that option. And if they don't do anything within that period, the rights run, revert back to us. And then you have to wait to see if somebody else then option them. So it's a case of with, you know, 200, 300 fantasy books coming out every year, finding something that they think will be commercially transferable. If you look at the TV series of the last few years that have been done really well, you've had Game of Thrones. And yes, I know some people had problems with the last series and it wasn't perfect and blah, blah, well, blah. Sorry, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so it it was the number one TV show in the world. And it made billions of dollars. And there are more in the works now. There's a new Lord of, Ring, Lord of the Rings one, which is a prequel TV series. Um, and there are a couple of others. But, you know, that's... Sorry, there's obviously The Witcher, which is ongoing. By, uh, yeah, Andrew. And there's um, also Star Wars one on, on Disney telly. Yeah, Mandalorian. Um, but, you know, you can probably do half a dozen fantasy-related TV shows, or maybe three, are based on novels. So you think about the, the odds. It's, it's pretty small. That's why they're not being made at the moment. It's the right thing at the right time at the right moment. And also being cost-effective. Like mine have a lot of wizards in and magic. Therefore, that's a lot of CGI, if you think about it. So, and, and Yeah, I mean, yours, yours are truly epic, aren't they? Um, until the price yeah. of CGI comes down for wizards, I don't think you're going to be seeing mine. <laughs> All you really need to do is write an incredible fantasy book set on the Isle of Wight that, um, you know, involves maybe a trip to Sandown one day where, where a seagull attacks you or something, you know, something quite low-key. A castle in Dublin, because they seem to film most of Game of Thrones there. So, you know, 
something like that. Anyway, it's a good next yeah. question. Um, are you more inspired by your new landscape, uh, or is London more inspiring for you now that you're in the yeah, new forest? Yeah, just moved to new forest. Yeah, moved to new. Um, I, probably new forest. Um, I don't want to belittle London at all, but I'm about to, I suppose. Because, <laughs> um, I moved from yeah, moved moved to London after university because that seemed to be the right thing to do. Everyone's doing it. Uh, and then I lived in London. I lived in Australia for a couple of years, uh, then back to London. And well, I lived in Australia for a year because that's as long as you're allowed to. Then back to London. Um, and then went to Manhattan, as we mentioned earlier, for what I spoke to you earlier, um, for almost two years. And Manhattan is, is you know, it's a mega city, it's, it's, it's properly urban. And then you go back to London, it's kind of quite Swiss villagey. So, uh, you know, in Manhattan, you're never the strangest person on a block. Um, you know, there's always something happens. There's always something weird going on. The pavements are much wider. It's much easier to get around it. And there are many more people on those pavements, mm. even when it's cold. I think it's very cold. Um, and so you came to London and just thought, uh, you're not really, you're not city-wise. You're not, you're not as interesting as Manhattan. So coming to the New Forest, which is zero, cause zero, you know, top trump for New Forest city score zero. But it's just amazing to go walking or running through the woods and, um, uh, uh, two days ago, I went for a run and uh, ran along a stream, and there were Shetland pony ponies, <laughs> you know, Shetland ponies with even smaller Shetland ponies next to them. Um, because New Forest, of course, is fake countryside. It's Narnia. It's not. It's not proper countryside. It's no. There are no slurry lorries down here. You know, there are no farmers telling you to fuck off. There are um, very rarely do you see the you know horrible animal stuff like you see like a pig's trotter on a barbed wire fence or something you come across every now and then if walking around Wiltshire which is where I grew up um so I'm I hear is much more inspiring it's much more idyllic it's much more lovely and sort of um sylvian um idyll it's 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 uh, I think it's much more inspiring down here okay um uh somebody asked are we getting closer to Armageddon maybe uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, in the same way that we're getting close to everything. You know, that's how time works. <laughs> if Armageddon's going to happen, then yes, we're getting closer to it. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like we're um, next question is, what inspired you to write so many multi-generational perspectives? Um, I suppose I'm interested in, I mean, I, I, I've been every age now, up to the age of 48. From about the age of three, I remember them quite well. And I remember how it felt and what it was like. And I love writing from that perspective. Um, and I love imagining what it's going to be like to be older looking back. So, Although I don't think I've written any good old characters yet. I should probably put more effort into that. Uh, but I love writing children. I love writing 20-somethings. Who, uh, and I love writing 40-somethings and 30-somethings. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I love remembering what trying to remember. Okay. What is um, yeah. uh, the next question is about female characters. Someone's asked that they really like the fact that you write diverse and compelling female characters. And they said, is it something that comes naturally or did you have to make a conscious, conscious effort to work at writing such characters? No, I mean, I've, I haven't tried to shoehorn any kind of characters in ever. Um, I write about what I'm interested in. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, yeah, no, I, I might do in the future. I might be forced to, but um, my life has been diverse and compelling female characters. I mean, I was brought up by my mum, and she dad, uh, but then I was brought up by my aunt and uncle. My aunt was a strong person in that relationship. You know, when I was younger, all my best friends were women. You know, I've met, I've met a lot of diverse and compelling female characters. It was quite annoying. I don't know if you found this as, as you do get older. And you, I imagine you look like the sort of person who's had women friends, or you seem like the sort of person who's had female friends uh, through college and whatever, uh, and school. Um, you kind of kind of let them go when they get married. Uh, you can't hang out with just them anymore. You can't go for a weekend away with your, your female friend anymore uh, because a they've got someone, and b you've got someone, and it's unacceptable. Um, so that's something disappointed me a bit later on. I mean, there are massive compensations, such as the joy of, of being married. Uh, but yeah, it's a bit of a shame that I've, 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 in a way, I've lost my diversity of female, of deep female contact. Um, I mean, that like purely in a sort of conversational kind of way. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've got to remember that more than more than live it at the moment. Yeah, I guess if you've had that experience in the past, you're, you're pulling on what you've known and people yeah. you've met to write such characters. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, yeah. Um, now that if I want to see Fear My Friend, I've got to see, I've got to see Emma and Jim. Yeah, um, <laughs> if you don't like Jim, <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> he's all right, you know. He's lovely. Mate from years back. Yeah, we don't have the shared experience. I'm sure he's a lovely guy, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> about what happened when we were 17. All our um, relationships change. It's just, just the way things are, everything's changing. You keep, like, there's a lot of reminiscing. You say, oh, remember when we were 22 and we did this? Yeah, why don't we do that anymore? Because I don't want to. I'm not, I, I'm in my 40s now. I don't want, uh-huh. I don't think I'd survive what I did in my 20s. And two, I want to go to bed at a reasonable hour. I'm, yeah, <laughs> just... I, I think that's what it is. You become more of an observer, or as I prefer to say tourist. I think that's a sort of say less creepy phrase. Um, yeah, yeah. Now I'm more. Of, I'm, I'm, I'm watching other people getting on with stuff and trying to, yeah, work it out for them. Yeah, and some of my friends are still sending me links to, you know, um, sort of Ibiza tracks and, and um, I went to Ibiza once. I don't really like it. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like I'm doing in my forties. It might be yeah, in my twenties, but that's that's you know that's a long time ago. Yeah, send uh, send me the link to which best slippers. That's, a, <laughs> that's <laughs> all. Yeah, or you know, we had a chat about mowers earlier on. You know, yep. that's uh, that's what I want to know now. Which mm-hmm. uh, which we uh, uh, what's, what's a good mower? Just comes um, with your age. Comes with age. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I genuinely, um, I genuinely enjoyed discussing road routes. <laughs> Someone's asked, uh, "What is the new book? What are you working on at the moment? What can you?" What can you tell us about what you're working on at the moment? Um, I don't know how much I can tell you, so I'll tell you everything because that's easier. Um, <laughs> okay. I, it's, it was, I'm, writing, I'm writing a children's book because um, basically my sense of humour is quite juvenile. Um, and uh, also I have a seven-year-old boy who, who reads the whole time. Uh, it's... If you listen, if you put a if you if you put a mic in our or a bug in our house, you'd hear us say, "Don't stop, stop reading, Charlie. Charlie, stop reading." Wow. It's not because we're it's not because we're you know book burners. It's because we're trying to get him to put his fucking shoes on. <laughs> He's uh, you know um, <laughs> reading a book or you're trying to get him to brush his teeth or do a poo or something like that. It's always always reading. Um, so I'm really beginning to see what he finds funny. Um, uh-huh. As I said, I remember every age. Like, obviously, that's a bit of a lie. I don't remember every age that clearly, but I remember from very early on having a really good sense of the ridiculous. Uh, but it's why I like Douglas Adams so much. Mm. And Charlie absolutely does. He, he, my seven-year-old, finds the ridiculous absolutely hilarious. Um, the first conversation I ever had with him, he was he was four years old. The first proper conversation I had, we were talking about the fact that we were. We, I took him to Denver um, for Comic Con in Denver, and then we went and drove across the desert, just the two of us. Uh, for 10 days which was one of the best trips I've ever done um, so we sat in a pizza restaurant in Denver and we talked about the fact that red foxes were everywhere uh, you know because he's really into animals so you know, they're on every continent red foxes and I thought yeah. well, when you say red foxes are everywhere is there one right here is that is red fox there is red fox there oh red fox um, you know you open up your, your cupboard in the morning yes red foxes get into a car. oh my god bloody red foxes absolutely everywhere um, and he was going on it as well he's like yes 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 hilarious and like, oh my gosh there's lots of red foxes it was the first time we'd gone off each other like that you know um, I really enjoyed a sort of hilarious both laugh both making each other laugh yeah yeah um, and so that's quite my sense of humor is about the level of red foxes being everywhere um, so it, I think it fits quite well in writing for a young audience so um, I think what I'm doing hopefully is combining my ability to write about you know the amazing and the fun and good characters with my very childish sense of humor and producing what i hope will be a good book from eight to twelve year olds um and what it is it starts off in the midlands um it starts off uh in a town called i can't remember but basically it's rugby um and they play the game of kettering instead of playing rugby obviously because it's a parallel universe um and uh, instead of all machinery and um, service people, they have dinosaurs because the dinosaurs didn't die out. Uh, so the cars are dinosaurs, always are dinosaurs, airliners are dinosaurs. Um, they you know, go over on dinosaurs. Um, and that's it. It's, it's, it's called uh, Dragon Boy. It's what it's, it's called at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's a, you know, it, obviously it's a, boy from James Smith in um, in the Midlands has the most boring life in the world who's about to have an amazing life when he gets sent to strangely enough the American desert to learn how to be a dragon boy to learn how to fly a pterodon 
and um, escort these huge dragon airliners that are basically huge dinosaurs. Sounds uh, fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, wacky. Is it? well, it's Harry Potter with dinosaurs, isn't it? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> dinosaurs instead of magic it's basically what it is I mean, it's again it's, it's not particularly original but i think it's a you know a good character it's a good story and it's funny um and nice settings and, and you know a good world excellent okay yeah. i wanted to ask you a few things because i've just read your first book again i reread it because my memory is so terrible i read it you know years back and it yeah gone uh, so I, I finished it today i finished it about two hours ago actually i thought i'd rush through it um and I loved it. it. It's 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 epic. And I was very pleased when I read it at the end. I read through your questions, and you said you you know Legend was a strong influence because one yeah. of the few books I have read is Legend by David Gemmell. Mm-hmm. I read that because I was up for the David Gemmell Award uh, with my first book, and I thought I ought to read Me the David Gemmell book. And I didn't win, so there you go. <laughs> uh, you know what? I love that. I love not winning because when people win an award and they say, "Oh, it's so humbling." They should try not fucking winning. <laughs> uh, it's a good deal more humbling. Um, True. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. Um, and I was uh, okay. So so you Balfrus clearly Dross um, was an influence there. I think on your names. I think influence you also. Oh, I like Curly who lost his hair when he fell out of a tree because mm-hmm. that's what happened to Duncan Goodhue, isn't it? The swimmer. You nick that directly from. <laughs> Who can say? It's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing coincidence. Amazing. Um, amazing. Uh, video game influence is quite a strong one, do you think, with you? Do you... Um, I don't know, because I'm an old school role player. I used to do, you know, paper and, and uh, dice. I'm old school uh, kind of a role player. You um, know the right way to fantasy. I haven't, yeah. I mean, I, I do play um, computer games. I've, I mean, I've always played them, but I don't think there is... Nowadays, computer games are so complicated and they're so massive and epic and, you know, you can play them for months and the, the storylines are amazing and the characters are fantastic, but I, I don't think it really feeds into my books, really. Um, it's just like in a separate part of my brain. I enjoy something over there and then I come back and, and, and go back to writing. Other books influence my books, but I don't think um, games do in the same way. So you can't say Japan on the Xbox to do some research. <laughs> no, probably can't get away with with doing that. Spending, you know, I, this is, I nearly I need to do this. It's really important. I don't know if that's going to fly in my house. I want to ask you also. Your fight scenes are really amazing uh, and huge. How, how did you um, how did you research your fight scenes? Like anything else, badly. Um, you know, it's, as we said, we, we do what we can. I read what I can. I study what I can. Um, I did, I've done various martial arts over the years. Like we're saying, when you're a kid, you do all these things and you try, try different things. I did, um, I did judo for eight years. I did, um, karate for six years. I did Kung Fu for two years. I did fencing. I did, you know, you, you try all these things. I swam at a local team for years. So you, you get to try different things and all of that kind of combined plus watching a million action films, you know, <laughs> and you're thinking, yeah. you have to write that fight scene between, you know, Arnie and Bennett in Commando, how would I actually write it? And, uh, or, or whatever it might be. And reading a hundred, you know, a couple of hundred fantasy books as well with fight scenes and David Gemmell was a massive influence too. So, the best thing about his books, I've always felt, is that he puts you right in the mud with the characters on the front line. So there's all this big stuff going on, you know, empires ending and kings and queens and wars and whatnot. Yeah. But the story will then take place with the guy on the front line fighting someone else, punching him in the face, and he doesn't care about what's going on. He cares about surviving. So that was very much my kind of act global and but think local approach um, to my books. So... Yeah, I like that because you have somebody sort of being cut in the leg. He's not sure where from, and um, stamps on his face, and yeah, it's a it's... it's a mess. People think it's all like it's so it's like ballet, like it's a kata and karate, and it's like if you've got ten blokes and you're all shoving and elbowing each other and fighting in a line. No, it isn't. It's a mess, and it would be smelly and dirty and horrible and noisy and yeah. And you stab so that. Oh, oh, 
sorry, Phil. <laughs> Friendly fire. You, know, you, you yeah. swing a sword like that, you've just hit the bloke next to you in the face with it before you yeah. try and hit the bloke in front of you. So you're going to injure someone. It's just, you know, you watch great, some great TV shows do it well and show how bad it can be. Um, like Bernard Cornwall's um, The Arthur Trilogy. Have you read those? Enemy of God. Have, I have actually, yeah. yeah. But they're yeah. again, they're yeah. kind of right in the mud really it's all about the shield wall isn't it with them that, yes yeah. yeah and you're, you're stabbing them through the shield wall and it's like a scrum you drive them forward and you drive yeah. them forward one step at a time and and, and that's it and you think hang on that's that, that's not what we've seen in films where they run mm-hmm. around and legolas with his 22 23 24 and are like fuck off i did archery for three years that's not how it works and the uh, hold <laughs> hold no uh, uh, mike shevden who's a fantasy author has done a talk about archery and how much nonsense there is in archery in films. There again, because he knows his stuff. Um, yeah. I went and asked him when I was doing, um, I think it was in the second trilogy to do with archery. And I was trying to get something right. And so I asked him and said, is it ready fire? Was it ready aim fire? Or is that guns? And it, we took it online and debated it. And there wasn't a definitive answer. Well, I do, I do, I know this because I've researched my archery too. It's never fire with bows because you don't fire them. It's Guns loose. fire because yeah. there's, you know, fire is involved. Ready, yeah. aim, whatever you want to do, shoot, loose, whatever, but it's not fire. It might yeah. be ready and then shoot, or it could be ready and loose, but there's no aim. It's like, well, you, you're ready, that's it, and then it's that's loose. And yeah. yeah. So, but it's yeah. just, you know, modern parlance and, and trying to get it right. And as I said, I got some things wrong. Next time, I'll do it better. Yeah, I, mean, I like the idea of, you know, before the battle, standing there and, you know, needing a piss or something, you know, the, the, the real things that might have happened, having it, you're chafing. Um, mm-hmm. It's a hot day. Yeah, that sort of thing. I like putting that into my battles. I think that's all the questions I had. So if people want to stay in touch with you, uh, where should they go? Should they, are you on your website and uh, are you on social media? <laughs> You'd hope my website, my website's just, is not working at the moment. My ah. email's just gone down. Um, so the best way to contact me is through smoke signal or good, just good. hang out in, in Paddington station on platform two between 11 and not really. Um, if you direct message me on anything on Twitter, whatever, I will always reply. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you send me an email, my email address is, is available. Uh, it's Gus at GusWatson.com. Anyone can email me and I will reply to them eventually. It might take a few days, but I leave things in my inbox till I deal, till I deal with them. So yeah, yeah. Please do get in touch. I'm always, I, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I hope to get to a point where I'm unable to deal with the correspondence, but <laughs> at the moment I can.